Just months after the anti-Semitic and racist Nuremberg laws were enacted in Nazi Germany, 28 nations sent athletes to compete in the beautiful Bavarian town of Garmisch-Partenkirchen to compete in the most extravagant ice and snow pageant held to date, surpassing anything of its kind in showmanship, attendance, entrance and performance. These games stuck the Olympic family's awkward stepchild and nourished it in front of almost one million spectators against the backdrop of appalling anti-Semitic posters and publications, Olympic beer gardens and ballets. Welcome to Garmisch-Partenkirchen 1936. So, I mean, I mean, they're not updates. I mean, you already know one of them. <laughs> but so we were originally going to record, record this the Tuesday before Christmas. Yes. Um, but the day before I had got my booster and I was feeling a bit sick. Um, you didn't know it yet, but you were getting prepared to catch COVID. So we were both in different places. Yeah. <laughs> and I sent you a message and I said, Chris, look, I've done a lot of research. I'm totally ready to record today if you want to i'm just feeling a bit sick uh but like if you want to i'm i'm all for doing the berlin olympics today and now chris i couldn't see your face when you uh replied to that but i i i i felt the judgment in the reply which is like well ruth the olympics aren't in berlin so i kind of got caught out there <laughs> i didn't want to you know <laughs> I didn't want to so, add, so, add salt to the wound of yeah. whatever you were feeling post shot. Yeah. So potentially that is what is known as in the business as lying. Uh, I am not prepared. And we'll just have to listen over the next uh, 40 to 60 minutes to see whether I've spruced up in the intervening, you know, two weeks of festivities. I will say it did give me time to rewatch Lake Placid, uh, the 1999 film starring Brendan Gleeson and the late departed uh, Betty White. And I was rewatching it and I was going, oh, because now I know that that mountain is the actual one that had the bobsleigh. Um, I'll have, I'll keep an eye out. I'll have, I'll have a look. And then I saw the mountain come into view and I was like, oh yeah, yeah. Can I see the bobsled? Yeah. Maybe I can. Maybe I can. And then pretty much in one of the most, in one of the uh, opening sentences, they go, uh, oh yeah, this is called Black Lake because Lake Placid was already taken, supposedly. Uh It's not even set in Lake Placid. It's set (laughs) in a different state, Chris. It's set in Maine. So I was promoting in the last Olympopod a film that actually has nothing to do with the Olympics. I mean, it didn't have anything to do with the Olympics anyway. Um, Now even less. But yeah, now even less. Now even less. But anyway, we're in Bavaria, uh, not Berlin, home of the National Socialist Party. So an ideal choice for the Nazi leadership. And it was a chance to show that the Reichland was the most glorious nation in the world. You can revisit Berlin 1936, that Olympopod, uh, where I assume we went into this in great and profound depth. Uh, but basically, originally, the Nazis were a bit meh about the whole Olympics. 
Uh, but then Goebbels stepped in he, and he said, do you know what? This would be great for the old propaganda. And so they really went for it. They constructed a new ski stadium, which would accommodate uh, 40,000 spectators in the stands and 60,000 overall. Though eventually they managed to squeeze in 80,000 for both the opening and closing ceremonies. The bobsleigh course was designed by Stanislaus Zetlensky, who has designed the deadly Lake Placid course too. Uh, so I'm hoping to be hearing about more spills, Chris. Oh, there are spills. I, I, hope, I, hope, that, I hope that comes <laughs> in. Um, there are only an estimated 2,000 foreign spectators and dignitaries at these Olympics, but it was seen at the time as being a great success. And there were even 80 women taking part. Actually, I might be lying. I I might not have too many spills. Um, oh, don't not, worry. I've got loads. Not in the bobsleigh. In the bobsleigh. <laughs> I've, I've got spills in the alpine skiing. That's about it. Mm. That's that's grand. I've, I've I've got lots of spills in the bobsleigh. <laughs> <laughs> but this was very much a, a dress rehearsal for Berlin as well, and also the Nazis learned uh, what m- maybe they can't get away with when they're welcoming multiple nations from around the world uh, to mm. one of their cities for an Olympic Games, uh, such as the the posters that were found around the city with uh, slogans such as no animals, no Jews, um, a lot of the anti... Which were also in Lake Placid, in fairness. What? <laughs> R- remember, yeah, like, we, we talked a lot about this in Lake Placid, like, there was, like, no dogs and no Jews. Oh, God. I completely, I completely knocked that out of my mind. Well, yeah, the no, no surprise that the Nazis were up to it as well. Uh, but our um, our new hero, Count Balier Latour, who is now running the show instead of Pierre de Coubertin, he uh, took a fairly hard line against it. Uh, there was a quoted discussion between the two where. Uh, Adolf Hitler said, well, you're a guest in my country, and shouldn't the guests be the one who uh, go by the host rules? And uh, the Count replied, well, this is the Olympic Games, and you are a mere guest here. I mean, it sounds a bit sassier than it probably was. (laughs) But in the end, he got his way, and many of the posters and the uh, nasty publications were taken down. And uh, yeah, they somewhat learned their lesson for the bigger show later in the year. Hmm. Shall we spill right into the bobsleigh? Spill away, Ruth. Spill away. Okay, well, well, first of all, it's not so much a spill, but Liechtenstein made their first appearance at the Winter Olympics. And indeed of uh, any Olympics, this was their first, their first go at it. Famously, with their two gold, two silver and six bronze, all from the Winter Games. Liechtenstein is the most successful participating nation per capita, with a medal for every 3,600 citizens, which got me thinking, you know, maybe the Vatican City should get into this, you know? Maybe, like, okay, they might have to wait a couple of Olympics, but I think they should start sending people. Um, what's their population? Like 600? Yeah. No, that can't be right. Yeah. I think it yeah. is five or 600, and, yeah. Yeah. They should definitely try and send people in. Get a few priests down the uh, bobsleigh. A curling team. Curling, yeah, curling. Vatican yeah, curling. Um, figure skating. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, they didn't medal in 1936, but that's okay. 
They sent four athletes, two for the combined Alpine event, and then a two-man team of Eugene Buchel and Edward Theodore van Falsfein in the two-man bobsleigh. Where have you heard that name before, Chris? Well, of course, Edward Theodore van Falsfein was the cousin of Edward Oleg Alexandrovich von Falsfein. Fascinating person was this Edward. He very much brought the Olympic movement to Liechtenstein and served as vice president of their national committee throughout the 30s. His brother was, of course, Frederick Jakob Adrodrovich von Falsfein founder of the Askania Nova Nature Reserve, a biosphere in the virgin steppes of southern Ukraine, with the world's largest population of Przewalski's horses. That's right, isn't it? I never know. Przewalski's horses. And probably Europe's largest population of ostriches and zebras. But that's got nothing to do with the Olympics, unlike the original Eduard Oleg Alexandrovich von Falsfein, who does. He was president of, as well of the Liechtenstein Cycling Association for more than two decades. And he also died as Liechtenstein's oldest person in 2018 at 106. Um, he also died like in an accident. So he had a bit more in him. He had a bit more in him. And he brought the Olympics to Liechtenstein. There were two Bob's Day events, obviously, because we've got the two men and there was also the four men. The USA won gold in the two man. And that was Ivan Brown and Alan Washbond. And we might be hearing more of the Washbond name quite soon because while the 37-year-old Alan wasn't going to see much more international bobsleigh, his son, Waitman Washbond, would compete in two Winter Games. <laughs> Though his best result was fifth in the 1956 <laughs> Contino d'Impresso Games. So, you know, uh, we may not, we may not. I mean, what a name, Waitman Washbond. I know, fantastic. What was Alan I, thinking naming him that? Uh. Maybe it was a family name, a family name. <laughs> anyway, in the four-man, Switzerland too took the gold. Switzerland won the silver and Britain took bronze. And um, There was a lot of characters in those two teams. Well, sir, tell me a little bit about those characters because uh, well, I'm going straight to the British team after this. <laughs> well, I might be able to set you up in the British team. I'll go for the French. Uh, this, uh, the French. I'll go for the Swiss uh, gold medal winners because there was a couple of those who were multi-talented individuals and just before you start like once again the second team wins gold and the first team wins silver yeah um yeah the underdogs bit of a tradition it is bit of a well, yeah in a sport uh, full of spills anything can uh anything can happen and yeah but it seems like in the last three games it's always been two for gold one for silver yeah and yeah. so was the case here yeah. with the Swiss. And with the Swiss. Uh, Charles Bouvier, part of the winning Switzerland 2 team, uh, was a footballer who was part of the Swiss silver medal winning squad in Paris 1924, though he didn't mm. play, he was part of the squad. Still, uh, was a very good football player. And Pierre Musy was uh, an equestrian rider who competed in the three-day eventing at the 1948 Summer Olympics and finish in fourth place with the Swiss team. Uh, from the US team that finished just outside of the medals, I believe in the four man. Uh, yeah, they were in fourth place. We had uh, Gil Colgate, oh. who was the great great grandson of William Colgate, who founded what is now known as the Colgate Palm Olive Company. And uh, he 
also served as director of the Colgate Company at one point. And he also was one of the founders of Planned Parenthood because he was concerned about the population explosion. A range of interests. A range of interests. Yes. On to the Brits. And, well, one person stood out to me. And oh, well, it, it, is it Frederick it's McAvoy? It's 100% Suicide Freddy <laughs> McAvoy. Suicide Freddy. Uh, yeah, great name. It's a great name. And do you know what? I was going to do a lot of research on this, but then I thought, do you know what? I might just go to what is quickly becoming a favorite segment among fans <laughs> and just go straight to his Wikipedia yes. page because I just feel that this warrants it. So you already set it up. Yeah. Suicide Freddy. Fantastic name for any bobslayer because, you know, he also like he, he was a bit of a womanizer. A bit of uh, a womanizer. <laughs> <laughs> That's putting it lightly. <laughs> well, I'm just I'm just thinking that we now have the Sonia Henny test, which is what five husbands? I believe so. Blue, yeah. He only got married three times, though he did uh make sure he only ever married wealthy heiresses, which I, I mean it's a choice. Oh no, Henny was only married three times, so it's a draw. Yeah, okay, fine. Only three times. God. Um <laughs> I, I, I'm like he he liked a nice short marriage too to his heiresses. He he was only, the longest he was ever married was two years. Wait, okay, wait, sorry, I have to go into the Wikipedia page. I have read this all, but it's just, you know, I just decided to forget the it quotes all. Quotes are fantastic, so it's it's worth it. Yeah, yeah. I just decided to forget it all so that I could go uh straight out of this. I mean, his marriage and relationships section is quite large. <laughs> Larger than his bobsleigh section. Yeah, I mean that was very much that was very much incidental that he he did a, a bit of a bit of bobsleigh. Um, so what 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 do I want to say from this? <laughs> oh yeah, he 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 did make some uncredited appearances in films, which we love in the Olympopod. Very good. Uh, th- throughout 1944, McAvoy was believed to have smuggled guns, valuable jewelry, and alcohol from Mexico City to Beverly Hills. Great, that's great. Uh, he also is said to have sold the shirt off his back for $2,000 to an Argentine millionaire, launching the fashion of flowered shirts for men. I, I, <laughs> Chris, do you want to... <laughs> it's hard to unpackage that, I'm going to be honest. Um, it sounds <laughs> like, <laughs> this guy likes the shirt I have. I'm going to make this a thing. <laughs> I'm going to yeah, sell incredibly yeah. expensive shirts. Uh, he was accused of statutory rape of uh, 17 year olds, which uh, not ideal, but he quickly, and that was why one of his marriages broke down, but it was fine within a few months. He had married another heiress, the daughter of the president of Standard Oil of Kansas. Uh, she was 18 at the time. Uh, sorry, one, uh, <laughs> one thing. Sorry. <laughs> I think, I think you have to be careful with the statutory rape thing, because I think that was against Errol Flynn and he McAvoy was embroiled in it and somehow um because it was at McAvoy's home yeah <laughs> so you can't go accusing people of rape <laughs> or well he was his, his friend oh was I apologize I apologize it was only Errol Flynn <laughs> and <laughs> it was only Errol it was only Errol Flynn uh, no charges were brought it was an accusation oh um, <laughs> <laughs> he, yeah, McAvoy 
only married people who are 18. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, the second marriage, his uh, wife was disinherited by her father after they eloped. So anyway, she left him um, and married another wealthy heiress. So yeah, good on him. Um, is that, I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, the most then <laughs> impressive thing, <laughs> once we get past all the statutory rape that wa- he wasn't accused of, is his death. And, you know, if you're if you go through life being called Suicide Freddy, you do want to go out... <laughs> In a flame of glory, you know, yeah. like, like you, you do, you do. So anyway, he was, um, his wife, his wife that he was at the time married to and a, a group of others were, uh, on a sailing trip on a boat called the kangaroo, which again, I, I, yeah, anyway, it's fine. It's not the important thing. Um, they were, they were planning to sail from Tangier to the Bahamas, but they didn't get very far because just off the coast of Morocco, there was a huge storm. And it wrecked the ship. McAvoy swam to shore to look for help, leaving people behind afloat on the mast. He wasn't able to get any assistance, so he swam back. His wife and himself then attempted to swim to shore. They died just because the the waves were too strong and he had already swum this twice before. That's very tragic. There, but like it doesn't end there because um, there were only three survivors overall, including one person who gave their name as Walter Praxmerer. But it turned out that that wasn't his name. He was a man wanted for murder for a woman in Berlin in 1945. And he just had a different name when he was traveling on this ship with Suicide Freddy. You have to say fair play to Freddy for going back. I mean, yeah, especially because he didn't seem like overly attached to his wife. Exactly. So like, um, yeah. yeah, no, no. It would have been absolutely. very on point for Eddie to actually just say, oh, well, can't get any help. Can't get any help. It'll be fine. And then make his way elsewhere. I, yeah. There's there's one one other aspect of, or an accusation against Freddie, which I really liked. If, if you weren't going to use it, I'd be happy to <sighs> throw it out it. there. Uh, it was the claims that he was covertly working for the Third Reich. Yeah. And uh, the FBI had uh, him under surveillance, <laughs> but just described him as an international pimp who was interested in his own well-being and probably not engaged in activities detrimental to the interests of the country. <laughs> <laughs> uh... <laughs> Basically, yeah. he's, he's too self-involved to actually give a shit uh, about yeah. doing things like that. Amazing. Oh, Freddy. Yeah, Freddy, Freddy. He was a Freddy. hell of a bobslayer, though. Yeah, well, I mean, he got bronze. Yeah, no, he was, yeah. Although this is a, as I said, fast becoming a firm favourite of the listeners, um, I think possibly I should have I should have read that more carefully the first time that I scrolled past it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> That's what we love about uh... you, Ruth. Ah, uh, sure look. Uh, sure do you have anything else look. on bobsleigh? Because uh, there's a something I wanted to do at the beginning, but I think it actually fits quite nicely now with uh, where we are. Go for it. Okay, so we've already heard some of your pronunciations of German names, and uh, it is something that caught my eye when looking through all of these uh, the events. Uh, because the names are quite interesting, and you might even go so far as to say funny, uh, the German translations for oh. these events. 
And for me, the thing is that they're all kind of overly descriptive and also very similar, each and every one of them. So I want to go through a, a few of them with you without you looking at the German Wikipedia page now and see if we I, can I'm decipher what they are. Okay, perfect. <laughs> so I'm going to give you the German uh, translation for the sport or the event. And when, when you said, when you told me you had a game ready for me, like I was, I was a little bit worried it was going to be spot the war criminal, but okay, this, this will, <laughs> no, this we'll, is, we'll do this. This is a lot friendlier. Yes. So we'll start with an easy one. Bob. Mm. Is it the bobsleigh? It is the bobsleigh. Okay. Now, okay. this is where it gets interesting. Eiskunstlauf. So, Kunst is like art, isn't it? So, I'm going to say, is it the figure skating? It is the figure skating. Okay. Good job. Nicely. Okay. Nice. Yeah, I said they're very, very descriptive. So, you're okay. unpacking them well. Nice start. Ice. We're, we're, two, we're two in, Chris. <laughs> let's, let's not. <laughs> two down, four to go. Ice Schnelllauf. So, Schnell, I mean, it sounds like snail, which would be slow, but I think it's fast. So, is it the speed skating? It is the speed skating. Oh. Well done, see? I knew you'd like My this. God, I'm kicking ass. Okay, go on. Do I get a medal after this? Anyway, go on. No, no, let, let's, all, let's all jump the gun. Come on. Ski Langlauf. Downhill skiing. Not quite. Oh. oh again, if you break it up. We've got oh, ski. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Is it the ski jumping? No. Oh, no! Okay. Well, we'll break it down here. Ski. Okay. Ski. Long. Long. Lauf. Yes. Uh, ski long run. Okay. Cross-country ski. Cross-country ski. Okay. <laughs> ski springing. That's the ski jumping. That's the ski jumping. Yay. Very good. Yes. And finally, in this round... Ice stock schießen. So, Chris, was this a sport or was this a demonstration sport? This was a demonstration sport, Ruth. Is it Bavarian uh, curling? It is indeed. <laughs> ice stock sport or ice stock schießen. Ice stock throwing. Yeah, I. so I, I looked this up because, I, I first of all, I was just delighted that we had, e even if it was demonstration, I was delighted that we had a bit of curling, uh, even though it was Bavarian curling. I tried to discern exactly what made it different to curling, and it definitely does have differences, but I don't feel like I am up to speed enough with actual curling to tell you exactly what the difference is. Well, it's got a different type of handle. Jesus. Right. <laughs> <laughs> also, uh, there was two different types of events. Mm. There was target shooting, which is where you're uh, looking to, similar to curling, to get into the center and get as many of your stocks sheathed into the center. Mm. And there was distance shooting, which was about uh, throwing it as far as you could go. Oh, I, I like that. Oh, I, mm. oh, yeah, no, I, I, I would quite like to have something like that in the games now. Uh, it's a bit like road bowling, which we <gasps> spoke about way back in the day when David O'Doherty joined us yeah. for the summer pod. It's, it all comes full circle because he also gave us an anecdote of uh, his, was it his great uncle? <laughs> oh, yes. Speaking at an yes, event at in Berlin. Time. Yeah, yeah. In Berlin 1936 uh, to Hitler saying, fair play, you run a good Olympics. 
Yeah, good roads. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Perfect for road uh, building. <laughs> yeah, precisely. <laughs> yeah, so they had um yeah, target events and distance events and multiple different uh versions, team, uh women, men, just for the Germans, um for everyone else and yeah. But it wasn't an official event. It was a demonstration sport. So I'm now going to say something that contradicts everything that I've ever said on the Olympopod because I've previously said that what I kind of like about the Winter Olympics is that it's very compact, you know, it just has these are the sports, we're going to do them, it's done. But now that I'm thinking of it, like, I kind of like the random element of the Summer Games. So, like, when you're on the track and field, there's, like, multiple things going on. And it does lack that kind of field aspect. Hmm. You know, where you could have a high jump and a javelin going on at the same time. We might need some field ice events, including throwing a stone as far as you can across the ice. That's great. I'd like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I'm pretty sure they can throw it further than any kind of speed skating rink around it. So there could be some interruptions there. Yeah, like I mean, we that would throw even more randomness. Imagine, imagine half of the field in the speed skating being taken out by ice stock being sheathed across the ice, huh? Yeah, but like it makes it real skating. The real skating, yeah. I think you could you could do that with you could do that with like curling and speed skating. Have curling in the center, yeah. or um, have speed skating going around outside while figure skating is happening inside mm, mm. and it's something that like does crop up in these early ones is like how they use the same piece of ice for everything so if you're at the end of the event uh sorry about that you're gonna just have to jump over the puddles from the ice yeah. hockey it was often at the detriment of figure skating it though. was yeah <laughs> it was it was um fair play to them <laughs> <laughs> Um, we won't see their like again until Lillehammer. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. Uh, where should we go to next, Ruth? There must have been something in the ice hockey. Were there any bust-ups? Oh, there was a huge, huge thing in the ice Canada hockey. Canada didn't Is win. Canada didn't win. Yeah, well, now, actually, and yeah, no, I. so I also just said that, and now, actually, I think we're both wrong. Ca- I mean, Canada didn't win. A lot of Canadians oh. won, though, they'd say. Uh, no. <laughs> Yes, there was the joke of the English Canadians beating the Canadian Canadians to the gold medal. But I actually have, you have to give the Brits some credit here. Mm. And, you know, they had in the previous Olympics, uh, Great Britain finished like third and fourth. Uh, but they were mostly just Canadian people who were living in the UK uh, as army officers or there for university. So they decided this time, the Brits, that they were going to have a British-born team for the most part. So they went the other way. They did some scouting and found Canadian, uh, uh, British-born players who were playing in Canada, who were playing in Canada, (laughs) (laughs) who were playing in Canada. And nine of the 13 players on the roster um, had grew up in Canada and 11 had previously played in Canada but for the most part they were all British born okay so we have this uh, guy called Bunny Ahern who was the general secretary of the British Ice Hockey Federation to thank for this he had a mole so to speak working in the Canadian uh, Federation and he put together a list of players who were born 
on the uh, on the British Isles. Uh, he contacted them and uh, he got eight of them to come to the team. Uh, the Canadians weren't happy about that, though. They tried to protest for uh, pretty much the whole event. And uh, there were a couple of occasions where they were particularly not happy. First of all, the fact that all of these uh, guys who were playing in Canada were going to take part. And uh, they were saying there wasn't any official international transfer. They can't, they can't play for Britain. Um, that was contested, though, and eventually the Canadians gave in as a supposed uh, gesture of sportsmanship. So the British Canadians were allowed to play after all, and turns out they were pretty damn good. And they had come up against each other in the main round of the competition. So what they had done for the ice hockey was to have three different phases of the competition. They had a group phase where teams played against each other and the top two went through to the next round. They did it again for the second round. But the idea was that no two teams would have to play each other more than once. So that any results that teams had would be carried over to the next round. And the Canadians supposedly didn't know about this until it was too late. And they had lost 2-1 against the Brits in the middle round. Uh, The Brits then went on to uh, go unbeaten for the rest of the championship. They beat Czechoslovakia and they drew against the USA. Nil all after six periods, which must have been a fascinating match. But it was enough for them to get the gold medal. Um, Japan came ninth. And something interesting that I found out was, so their goalkeeper was a guy called Teiji Honma. And he's cited as one of the first people to have ever worn a goaltender mask. Uh, Before then, they were just like, nah, hit it at my face, it's fine. Um, Somebody else had worn one before, Elizabeth Graham. Her father wouldn't let her play unless she wore a mask. Uh, So she wore a fencing mask. Uh, a few years later, uh, somebody on the Montreal Maroons, Clint Benedict, wore a leather mask to protect his broken nose, but he decided that it obstructed his vision. It wouldn't really be until the late 50s before it kind of became commonplace that goalies protected their face, which I find amazing, given that like from all that we've heard, it's not as if these were non-violent <laughs> contests. Oh, Oh no, and I did. I did watch footage uh, from these games as well. And what the thing I noticed first of all, watching the ice hockey at these games, is that the speed and the skill had clearly increased mm-hmm. uh, since the the early early days of Winter Olympics ice hockey. Uh, there was plenty of argy bargy, like proper body checks happening, and half of the shots were just players. Uh, on the ground with the goals overturned on top of them Hmm. Uh, seemed to happen an awful lot (laughs) the goal being knocked over and goalkeepers or other players uh, being stuck underneath it so yeah it felt it would feel like a smart thing to do uh, to wear a mask (laughs) there were no helmets for any of the other players as well no and uh, as far as i've watched in our uh, brief tour through winter olympic history i've yet to see one yeah yeah. So what he wore, he wore uh, similar to a baseball catcher's uh, helmet. He also had behind the wire cage. He also wore glasses when he was in the nets, um, and then just a leather protected uh, between the glasses and the mask. Um, hmm. It just seems like a sensible thing to do. 
Yeah, smart yeah. guy. But I do wonder, like, did, did all the other people, like, were they like, oh my God, look at him wearing a mask? Yeah, what a coward. I mean, they're mostly Canadians playing. I think it says more about the Canadian people <laughs> and just how nuts they are. Uh, well, yeah. Canadian ice hockey players. Uh, especially since, you know, in 1930, a Canadian did wear a mask, but quickly discarded it, even though he had a broken nose, you know. So <laughs> it was going to be a while before that caught on. Um, but yeah. Was there any film? Oh, there was. It was only um, 37 minutes, ah. though, which is quite disappointing. Jugend der Welt, uh, Youth of the World, is what it was called. It was no Laney Riefenstahl, I'll tell you that. Oh, God. Just a bit too short. I- I'm thinking just like the Olympopods ideal time is around the 52 minute mark i would like the olympic films to be about that as well do we have 52 minutes anyway anyway (laughs) but did you see anything good apart from the ice hockey i mean they always show the ice hockey they love doing that they do and that has that has improved a lot uh, in that time uh the cross-country skiing they showed and yeah while ice hockey has improved visibly by this point Cross-country skiing has not. I think I was quite critical of it in the earlier Winter Olympopods. I'm still quite critical of it. Really not a good look. Mm. Um, it appeared to be more like a mountaineering competition on skis. skis. <laughs> yeah. Uh, clambering up hills, falling on the descents, just a whole lot of people looking very uncomfortable with their choices in life. And um, <clears throat> I guess it wasn't helped by the fact that the IOC ruled that ski instructors could not compete in these games because they were technically professionals. So, I mean, people the people who were most likely to be in a position in life to actually do this and be good at it in the 1930s uh, weren't allowed to do it. And because of that, the Austrian and the Swiss skiers boycotted the Olympics completely, uh, though some of the Austrians decided to compete under the German representation. That's really interesting because I'm going to mention it in the next Olympopod because I read that in 1940 it was going to go to Samaritz. And actually, the IOC at this stage wanted ski instructors in the event, possibly because 1936 people boycotted it. Um, but but yeah. Samaritz said, no, uh, they're professionals. They're not we won't we won't let you come here if you let them compete Bizarre. as as it happened there were other things to worry about but yeah so they in the intervening years they seem to have changed their mind and then it become became an issue again yeah yeah and the the film showed the 4 by 10 kilometer relay race mm. which um I mean that that was there was a huge disparity in the quality of it. Like you had Finland winning it in two hours forty one minutes, just six seconds ahead of Norway in second place. Right, so super tight at the top. But then you go down to fifteenth place, mm-hmm. which is Bulgaria. Now bear in mind, Finland won it in two hours forty one. Okay. Bulgaria finished fifteenth in three hours thirty minutes. Okay, but spare a thought. For Turkey, who had their third of the four skiers complete their leg after three hours, 18 minutes, after 12 of the teams had completed the entire thing. So poor Mahmut Shevket, their fourth man, did not finish. 
Two days later, however, Mahmoud Shevket did get his chance in the 18-kilometer race. And that was won by Eric August Larsson in one hour 14. Mahmoud was in last place of those who finished, 72nd place in two hours and nine minutes, a whole 18 minutes behind the second to last place. However, he was the only one of the six Turks who were competing in their first Winter Games to finish a race. So congratulations to Mahmoud. It's it's an achievement. It's a nice way to finish it. Exactly. It was. And uh, we we do love uh, taciturn Finnish-speaking people in all of the Olympopods, winter or summer. And the, the winner of the, that race in the 18 kilometers was uh, a Swede, as I said, Eric August Larsson, who was known as Karuna Lassa. His native tongue was Finnish, and uh, he was quite well known for his... Uh, unwillingness to speak uh three years after his olympic victory he participated in a prayer meeting in kuravara after which he quit competitive sport almost immediately and joined the firstborn Stadion christian church never to be heard of again never heard of again hmm. well except his his granddaughter is like a famous novelist yes. now, so not not quite <laughs> <laughs> there you go there yeah. you go i was just reading up recently about the a stadium church, so ah. yeah, for your most famous son. <laughs> uh, well. Yeah, um, in the speed skating, Norway did well. I mean, I don't do anything else on that other than the fact that Norway did very well. Obviously, since Lake Placid, they've decided that okay, if we're going to skate the American way, we're just going to have to skate faster, and they did. Oh, no, they went back to the old way. Did they go back to the old way? Oh, yes. my God. <laughs> That's why. Never mind. Yeah, uh, but to be fair, um, Ivar Balongrud, who was the star of the games, who won three of the four uh, medals, gold medals, mm. uh, and a silver in the other, he had got a silver medal in 1928 in the mass start races. So he was generally just very good and uh was clearly the best when it came to not uh, dealing with americans trying to knock you over yeah okay that's good that's good um but also then staying with the skiing uh women were allowed ski great yeah i mean <laughs> what, can you t- what can you tell me about that <laughs> i mean not a huge amount it's, it's just because uh, it's because to be perfectly honest there isn't a huge amount of information <laughs> other than the fact that they were allowed you know ski i did see that the person who won for the combined her name was christy kranz and yeah no she was a great little skier um but again like when i was going through her profile on wikipedia it was all it was all very good i mean she won 12 world championships between 1934 and 1939 so she really was at the top of her game uh she became a philologist which is uh. <laughs> What's philology, Chris? A philology? Yeah. Um, is it someone who studies philharmonic orchestras? It's the branch of knowledge that deals with the structure, historical development, and relationships of languages and uh, language in general. 
So that was that was her thing. But anyway, um, I did see. So she she. she <laughs> I just googled it, and that's exactly the definition. <laughs> yeah, that's busted, no, no, Chris, I just know all the definitions. And then people also ask, what is the difference between linguistics and philology? And second, is philology still a thing? <laughs> is it? <laughs> This sense has never been current in the United States and uh, is increasingly rare in British use. So is it basically just... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very... It's, linguistics. It, I'm not sure it has a huge amount of relevance to her story or indeed the Olympics. Um, but yeah, in 1943, she got married to a Luftwaffe uh, pilot. And at the end of the war, she was actually arrested because of her collaboration with Nazis. And she was sentenced to 11 months of farm work. Um, but she later then did flee into the American occupied zone and uh, she found a skiing school. So there you go. Lovely. Yeah. All, everything came up crystal at the end. Came up crystal, crystal clear. That was a, that made its debut, Alpine skiing, mm. in, at these games. And, um, yeah, as, as you said, the issue won the combined. That was the the only competition for alpine skiing. It was um, downhill and slalom together. And watching that though, it it did look like more like uh, more like a canoe or kayak slalom, not as we know it today. It was very awkward, like very grueling, and there were a few a few spills. I did promise spills, and <laughs> there were plenty of spills in the alpine skiing uh, there was one section of the downhill where <laughs> everyone who was shown it was one section where everybody seemed to lose control mm. fall get up go again and then fall again about 30 meters further downhill as if it was just a part of the run <laughs> it was just like yeah this is the part where you fall over twice you deal with it you get up as quickly as possible and you keep on going did did it did it remind you of your own attempts chris <laughs> <laughs> yes, although my own attempts of downhill um, skiing or snowboarding, the, the spills were often unexpected. Mm. <laughs> mm, yeah, and ha not happening as quickly as uh, these spills did. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Ah, look. In the figure skating then, uh, Germany's Maxi Herber and Ernst Bayer took gold in the pairs. And Maxi Herber became the youngest gold medalist in Olympic figure skating, a record which still stands at 15 years and 128 days. And figure skating had the biggest controversy of all. Go on. I mean, I can't believe we've gone so far. I guess it's, it's a case of saving the best for last. Of course. And so <coughs> Sonia Henney's final Olympics. Mm. And I read a piece on the skate guard blog which was fantastic it really outlined the whole thing very well and it started brilliantly it was like now if you want to talk controversy dot 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 we do <laughs> <laughs> you're speaking you're speaking to your target audience here skate guard blog uh the stories surrounding sonia henny's third olympic gold medal in 1936 were nothing short of unbelievable before the olympics had even started Henny had visited with Hitler in Germany, mm. the Henny family, in fact, and during a 1936 show in Berlin, she gave him the Nazi salute and said, Heil Hitler, which the Norwegians were not uh, very happy about, as you could imagine. 
Richard D. Mandel's 1971 book, The Nazi Olympics, noted the two, dur- the two durable heroes of the German Winter Olympiad were Sonia Henney and Adolf Hitler. Um, only, only the undisputed Empress of Winter and the increasingly secure Master of the Third Reich possessed the magic required to fascinate the masses at Garmisch and had the ranks of stars in the world at large. This is a strange quote, Richard Mandel. (laughs) The two were demonstratively together a great deal, and they fed on each other's staged smiling. So, uh, Maribel Vinson, who was competing uh, competing against uh, Sonia, had finished in fifth place in the end, I believe, she uh, wrote that uh, Sonia had almost no speed for the second half of her figure routine. She came up to the second bracket right on the flat of her skate instead of on an edge, which is a major fault. Mm. And uh, after the turn, she had to wiggle and hitch her skating foot to keep on going. Uh, but she just ground to a halt in the end. Uh, was at a dead standstill. Made no pretense of trying to finish her circle and just put both her feet down smiled and walked off the ice we gasped to see the world champion do such a thing the figure as it stood deserved no more than a 3.8 average if even that and yet ruth and yes she wrote when the judges put down their cards not one, not even Mr. Roch, who indeed does know correct figures, had given her less than a five. We competitors and those on the sidelines who knew laughed in derision at, uh, with a what-can-you-expect tone. And uh, she looked at Mr. Roch with a question, how could you do such a thing? And he just shrugged. So... Despite that, she was barely ahead of Cecilia College, who we spoke about in mm-hmm. the last Winter Olympopod. Um, apparently, it's it's unknown whether this is actually true, but uh, apparently at this halfway mark, with the margin too close to comfort, Henny yanked down College's score from the board and tore it to pieces. Okay. Some people say that didn't happen and she just uh, caused a bit of a scene in the dressing room. But whatever the reality was, she was not a happy camper. And then there was a bit of controversy over the order in which the athletes went out for the free skating performance, the second half. College went out second. And um, she came out and gave the Nazi salute, which was interesting. And the German audience loved it, of course. Uh, There was a technical error in which her music stopped. (coughs) She had to start again. Uh, But she put on a brilliant performance nevertheless. Sonia Henney, though put together a near-perfect performance. The audience went wild with applause, and it was clear to see which way the judges would go. It was Mm. gold. Gold number three for Sonia Henney. Yeah, but so in her revised biography in 1954, I think like she complains about the fact that there was no Norwegian judge, which there's meant to be. There's meant to be a judge for every country present. But I mean, she got the gold. Not sure what she wanted more. Um, The whole... Quisling-esque nature was always a bit of a question mark around her because um, by all accounts, when the Nazis invaded Norway, when they came to her family home, Hitler's autographed photo was displayed prominently above the piano. 
And uh, as a result, none of her properties were confiscated or damaged by the Germans. Mm. Look, um, in a Vanity Fair article, which I came across, um, you know, the people who knew her, such as uh, Dick Button, said that she was an opportunist, um, that she didn't really care who Hitler was or wasn't particularly uh, interested in the politics but was just doing it for career, her career. And um, yeah, whether she actually knew what she was doing or not, that's uh, not for us to say now. Still, you know, I'm not sure being an opportunist is the best defense. No, but well, it but, yeah. saved all of her properties <laughs> in Norway. Uh, she stopped, <laughs> stopped being an athlete. Yeah, and 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 in spite of being accused of being a quizzling, uh, she did make a triumphant return to Norway. Yes. In the, in the 50s, in the 50s. Um, but yeah, there you go. Yeah, and then uh, turned herself into a superstar in the USA. I mean, everything she did in the US with her uh, skating uh, shows and her film career it could be a whole podcast in itself. There were films made about it, so of course there could be podcasts made about it. <laughs> uh, but this is about 1936, goddammit, so I don't care that she made half a million dollars within a year after retiring. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a whole bonus pod on all the Olympians who became actors. I think that's going to have to be one. Yeah. <laughs> let's, I think we're let's, just, have to do that. let's just concentrate on trying to get actual Olympopods out and then yes. we can start thinking about <laughs> then we can start thinking about the uh, bonus ones as well. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah. I don't have anything else in this Olympics. I mean, I kind of found the information, like a lot of information about Irish got organised, but I, they, they, it was a little bit... I know you say there were spills, but I felt it was lacking in hard spills, you know? Yeah. Um, but that's not something we have to worry about for the next Olympics. No, sorry, Bob. Um, overall, though, I think we had probably more information in this one, more interesting, like, solid stories. Yeah. Than we haven't had in the earlier ones. It, it has been difficult because um, with the early Olympics, Summer Olympics... There's loads of information. Like there's occasionally Olympics where not much happened, but that's grand. There's always just loads and loads of information. Um, there's not not a huge amount, and you know, I know I always go back to my historical dictionary of the modern Olympic movement, but a lot of these, when they say like go to these these biographical sources, if you want, there's a lot in these early Winter Olympics which is like there is no information. You can contact this uh, research fellow. Um, in Lake Placid <laughs> if you want more information but he might be dead um, so it, it's been a, it's been a challenge not so when we go to 1948 yes like <laughs> <laughs> oh Chris and yeah so I don't know is, is, that, is that an outro I don't know no we're not <laughs> we're not done yet we're not uh, done yet I feel sorry like, I apologise because like in, my, in my intro I did mention the the beer garden oh yeah and the you ballet did. which which I, I probably should make reference to because we Absolutely. have in the past said things in the intro and then never <laughs> never made reference to it again um so I, i'm gonna go to one of our most reliable sources here david goldblatt mm. and his book the games 
uh, a global history of the Olympics. Wait, Chris, are you telling me there's Winter Olympics in Goldblatt's book? I just flung it. Oh, I yeah. just flung it aside. I haven't even been looking oh, at there, it. There is. There's the odd paragraph every 200 pages or so. That's all you need. On the Winter Olympics. and uh, that's, like, that's like five minutes of padding. Exactly. And you mentioned the, <laughs> you mentioned the, um, the slope they built, and that was brand new, that brought people down to the press corpse at the bottom of the village and had room for 75,000 spectators. Oh, you said 80 in the end, right? That well, squeezed so yeah, in there. They squeezed it in. They mm. squeezed it in. And... Yeah, and so uh, there was whole regiments of SS guards, stormtroopers, and uh, Nazi dignitaries who were uh, shuttling between the mountains here and Munich, where they could drink beer with the Reichsportführer von Chammer at his own Olympic beer garden, or they could go to see the Olympic Rings, a ballet with music by Richard Strauss. That sounds brilliant. Um <laughs> And so, because of that, I'm going to go on a tangent here. It has nothing to do with the Olympics, except that it's the Olympics of uh, music. Um, And everyone knows Riverdance. Are you waiting for the listeners to reply? (laughs) (laughs) Potentially. But the thing is, Riverdance, which came out in 94, it was based, they did this, they based it on a really bad dance that they did. It was a thing called Time Dance, which was also, I believe, composed by Bill Whelan, I think, who who composed Riverdance. And it was for the 1981 Eurovision Song Contest, which Ireland also hosted. Um, and it's Ireland through the ages in the form of like non-threatening dance, because obviously there was a lot of stuff going on in the 80s and we didn't want to reference too much um and yeah it was it was very much like oh here's a dolman we're going to dance in circles <laughs> now it's the medieval times let's dance in circles oh it's the 80s let's dance in circles so was it a little bit like that chris <laughs> was it what do you say was the ballet a little <laughs> yeah, bit like that yeah, yeah, i don't know ruth i wish i could tell why you. wasn't it in the well, film it wasn't part of the official film. Okay. In that case, it probably was a little bit like Time Dance because Time yeah. Dance does not deserve a YouTube video. Um, it is much longer than you would have thought you could just dance around periods of time in Ireland. Like, it also just seems like they really, I won't say danced around the subject because they did, like, they danced around all the other subjects, but they they went through, like, you know, the 19th century. And it's like, you know, there was a whole famine there. Why aren't we dancing for that? Not a, not enough energy to dance. Not enough energy to dance. Mm. Yeah. Break dancing or break will be in the next oh, the game. Chris. Now we can't look, we, we we can't really be talking about that yet because we are like we haven't even mentioned it. We've gone uh chatting for nearly an hour. And uh, we haven't mentioned Happy New Year to all our listeners and the fact that Happy New Olympic Year because we are an Olympic year. Yes, we are. But I'm going to go back to the end of last year because when I did a lot of the preparation for this, it was still 2021. Yeah. And as you mentioned at the top of the show, it was shortly before Christmas, which is also your birthday. Yes. Which means we need to do Roots Olympic birthday. But is it not too far in the past? Is it not a historical event now? No. Okay, Uh, fair enough. 
No, I'm I'm sticking to this now uh, because I have you're invested. The, the research, yeah. Um, I, I'm I'm going to be straight with you here, Ruth. It was quantity more than quality when it comes to Olympians. Okay, born on the 25th of December. You know, it's it's it like in the Western world is the rarest day to be born on after yeah. the 29th of February. So I'm I'm, I'm surprised I'm surprised that there is the quantity and I'm, I'm even more surprised that there isn't the quality. Uh, There's hundreds. Okay. Hundreds of them. Uh but you know, you know when we're looking at these things you want people who, you know, we featured already because they've had an interesting story mm. Mm. or they have hilarious names or come from interesting places. Yeah. This is what I've got for you. We're starting with Gerard Vesterman, mm. born in 1880 on the 25th of December, a three-time art Olympian. Oh, I like that. What stood out to me here is that he entered three times. Okay. So he was persistent. Yeah. Um, in a time where the art Olympians didn't seem to be too bothered. Yeah. Um, but Chris, now in fairness, in fairness, there's a lot of repeat uh, entrance. I, I admire him. Yeah. Did he medal? He did indeed. (gasps) He earned the incredibly rare bronze medal (laughs) (laughs) for for his drawing Horseman (laughs) at the 1932 art competition in Los Angeles within the category paintings, drawings, and watercolors. Did anyone else medal? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was standard medaling in that event. Um, Still... Bronze, as we know uh, from the art competitions, a rare one to get. Now, Chris, I, I feel like, like, did you find... I got more. No, 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 no. But did you find the picture, Horseman? I didn't. Okay, I'd like to see that. I also didn't look for it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I thought Horseman, bronze medalist, probably not on the internet. Uh, we'll find out. Maybe it is. We'll post it. Noel Bass, born in 1877. Uh, was a gymnast and he won a silver in the individual all-round men in 1900. Oh. The uh, the oldest person born on the 25th of December, who was also an Olympian, was in 1862, Raoul Count de Bois. Okay. Yeah, Count. I knew you'd like a little Count. Yeah. He has a total of one silver and three bronzes. At both the 1906 intercalated and the 1908 games in shooting. Yeah, I know. I, I like I like an intercalated uh, reference. That's good. And finally, uh, a friend of mine, born in 1986, Guro Rowan, who is a Norwegian handball referee and refereed in the 2016 Women's Olympic final in Rio. I think there's a lot of quality there. I was yeah. I was like coming into this thinking that maybe. Um, I was the most famous Olympic adjacent person born on the 25th. But no, like, I mean, we got the intercalation in there. We got the Irish competition in there. We got a friend in there. Like, this, this, yeah. that's a good haul. It is. It is. I, I'm saying quality over quantity because there's nothing truly ridiculous in there, you know? Also, all of these people were found on uh, Olympedia, which goes to show that Olympic adjacent people, mm. I'm not saying Euro because she, refereed in the olympic final and deserves to be there of course but there are people who've gotten like um olympic merit merit awards 
who were born in the 25th. So I'm thinking like... We could get a marriage. (gasps) It wouldn't be too long until your name should be there among them on Olympedia. Yeah. Oh, I I can't wait for that achievement. (laughs) Um, Bill Madden, get on it. Get on it, yeah, yeah. Well, look, Chris, you look like you're about to die. So... (laughs) So we'll take a five-minute break and come back with 1948. And if I'm not mistaken, the Summer Games in 1948 were in London. So the Winter Games are going to be in Newcastle? Brighton? Must Mm. be. Must be. We'll find out. Must be. We'll find out next week. (laughs) Go recover, Chris. (laughs) 